Well, thank you for being here this evening. We are continuing our study on the supremacy of the Word of God. That is our overarching and main topic, but uh, we are continuing in the portion with respect to the canon of Scripture. Now, the canon of Scripture has to do with what books of the Bible uh, are a part of our Bible. How did that come to pass? And my hope is, as we finish up today, that we will be more confident that the books that we have in, in our Bible are not just haphazard collections. They are intentionally given to us by God himself. And so that is the goal of our understanding here. This is the goal of where we try to arrive at so that we can place the confidence in the scriptures that, ought to, that we ought to give to it. We don't need to hold back or to be reserved as to our devotion to the words that God has given to us. So we're studying on the New Testament today, which to me is a little bit uh, more fascinating and also uh, maybe a little bit more uh, questioned as opposed to the Old Testament, which has a much longer history. But it never, it nevertheless, even though the process is different, uh, nevertheless, we don't have any less um, assurance of what we have in the Bible. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, as we consider this, I want us to go back to what I mentioned last time, and it had to do with the apocryphal books. The apocryphal books, can anybody tell me what the apocryphal books are? They are the books that Catholics have added to their scriptures. So the apocryphal books are books that the, the Catholics have added. And I'll use some of those as an example. Now, when we, come, when we looked at the Old Testament, the primary driving uh, idea was that God chose to use prophets to speak his word. And as the prophets spoke the word, they were to be received and accepted by the people. That was God's intention. When we come to the New Testament, there's something a little bit different. We have prophets when we look at the Old Testament, but when we come to the New Testament, not only do we still have the prophets at work, but the prophets are at work with respect to the apostles. And the apostles are those who have been chosen by the Lord Jesus himself. And so what the apostles say then becomes the critical factor in the books of the New Testament. So we'll kind of bring this up as we go through it. Now, I had mentioned the book of Esther. Esther is one of those books in the Old Testament that does not mention the name of God. And because it does not mention the name of God, there is an addition to the book of Esther, which is basically about one chapter. And in that one chapter, what do you think it does? It mentions God. So you take that addition to Esther, you tack it on to the end of Esther, and now you've got a book worthy of the Bible, right? So that's kind of the thinking. But we have to remember that man cannot decide whether or not Esther needs an addition. Because it is God who is giving the word, and he knows what he is doing. So, you know, we, we often have a tendency to help God out a little bit, maybe give him some advice, tell him how he should do things and, you know, this kind of human nature, but we don't need to do that or uh, be concerned about that. When we come to the New Testament, we have this issue where it seems like James in his epistle and Paul in his epistles are at odds about the whole faith and works business. So James puts a lot of emphasis on works. You say you have faith, show me your faith by your works. 
Whereas we read Paul, and Paul says, it is by faith alone. And so it seems like these two are at odds, and it's like we come to it, and we decide we're going to add a chapter to the book of James just to kind of help everybody out and bring James and Paul a little closer together. That's what adding something to Esther would be like. So we don't have to worry about that. Uh, the church was not at liberty. The church is not at liberty to do anything like that, to help God out. We don't need to do that. Another um, part of the Apocrypha is Bell and the Dragon. And Bell and the Dragon is such a cool story. Um, it shows the deceit of humanity and false religion, and it shows the weakness of evil spirits against the true God. It's just, you know, there's this confrontation between God, who is real, and these evil spirits, and God, of course, comes out on top. And because it's such a cool story and it uh, you know, talks about God in this way, you know, well, you know, such a, pro- such, a, such a story should be part of Scripture. So it has been added. But again, we cannot make the decision as humans as to whether or not something should be there or shouldn't be there, whether something should be added or something should not be added. And that's really the basis of my contention here. We do not have the liberty to make that choice. Especially when we're coming to the scripture, and we believe in the inspiration of God that he inspired his prophets to speak the words that he wanted. Um, nobody else is at liberty to make a change. First and second ba- uh, Maccabees is another part of the Apocrypha book, and it, is a, it provides a history that is so important. You, you just, we just would not know a whole lot about the history of the nation of Israel and some of the nations around Israel if we did not have the books of Maccabees. However, if we say that because they are critical in our understanding of history, and so we should add them to Scripture, that's like saying we should add Eusebius's church history. Now, Eusebius was a church historian. He wrote about 325 A.D., and he, his, uh, his church history is one of the earliest that we have, and he basically goes back to the time of the apostles, and he traces the history of the church from the apostles until his time. And it's really fabulous reading. For example, if you read, well, we don't need to get into that, but it's, a, it's, a, it's the only church history of its kind, okay? It's, uh, it's important in the historical context. But just because it is so important, we do not have the liberty to add that to Scripture or anything else. So we, we can't decide on our own whether or not something belongs to Scripture. So... What is in Scripture is not a matter of human choice. It is not a matter of human choice. We do not decide. We cannot decide. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that no one can add to his words, God's words, and no one can take away from God's words. So this is how important this issue is. So we read about this. There's this this uh, sentiment of occurs a couple of times in Scripture. Here's the first one, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, and it says it plainly. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. All right, so we're not free to add or to take away from Scripture. Uh, Scripture itself is not in favor of that, to put it mildly. People cannot decide Jewish people can't decide what belongs and what doesn't belong. The church cannot decide what belongs and what doesn't belong. No one can decide what does belong and what doesn't belong. It is not up to the church or the nation of Israel or anyone else 
what belongs in Scripture. Um, it did not take the church a hundred years or so, hundreds of years, to figure it out. That is not the process. And so we look to Scripture, and if we don't, if we don't remain adamant on this point, what we end up with is a book that is not inspired by God, and we end up with something that is close to man-made religion. That's how important this is, and we do not want to do this. Our faith and our Christianity is not a man-made religion. It has been delivered to us by Jesus Christ himself. And, um, and so this is uh, critical in our understanding. We do not have the liberty to add or to take away, to decide or whatever what belongs in Scripture. It is given to us by God himself. Okay? Now, that brings us to kind of uh, summing up what's going on here in the New Testament. And uh, our first and primary point is this, apostolic authority. So what belongs to the Bible or the message that comes from God comes through his apostles, his apostolic authority. So let's look at some verses that uh, say this. And, and I think that as we look at some of these verses with the eye of establishing the New Testament or understanding the, the writings of the New Testament, we'll be a little bit surprised as to what we might find. Or maybe not surprised, but just kind of, um, just never really seen it from this perspective before. But uh, I would encourage us as we look at these verses. So the first one is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And it says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he's encouraging them as having, you know, being part of the church. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, if I were to say that Jesus is the foundation, we all know that, and there are verses that say that. But when we consider that the foundation also includes, by the choice of Jesus Christ, his apostles and his prophets, then that is expanding in an important direction our understanding of what Christ is doing in and through the apostles as he establishes the church. Now, this is not unusual, and this is not unique to a verse like this. For example, when uh, Jesus brought his disciples together, uh, he said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they came up with all kinds of, you know, you're this or that, or John the Baptist come back from the dead. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Christ said, I mean, Peter said his famous declaration, right? You are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but he said this, on this rock I will build my church. And that is critical right there. Peter is an important part of the establishing of the church. And of course, it stems from the authority of Jesus Christ himself. So the apostles aren't acting on their own. It is uh, the authority of Christ that is coming to them. So the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit, fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God 
in the Spirit. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, is talking about the establishing of the church following the coming of Jesus Christ, and it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus being the cornerstone. Okay, the next verse we want to look at, Ephesians, again, chapter 3 this time, verses 3 through 7. So it says, How that by revelation... He made known to me, Paul is talking about himself, Jesus made known to him, the mystery. Skipped it down to verse 5. Well, I could read, I have verse 4 on the screen. So it says, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. It's kind of parenthetical there. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles, and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace God of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So Paul, in this passage, is effectively saying there has been this mystery, and it was hidden in the past, but now, through the Spirit, it has been revealed to me by the grace of God. And he, of course, then gives it out. So the important point here is the revelation of the word to his apostles and prophets. Okay, it has been revealed by the Spirit to his apostles and prophets. Now you remember, it says uh, when we talk about the inspiration of God, it is the Spirit inspires the men to write his word. That's what inspiration is all about. And that's uh, another verse that we've read before. So here we find the same thing going on, just worded a little bit differently. For this next passage, I want us to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is a really fascinating passage. Now what I want to do is I want to look at Peter's view of his writings or of the writings of the New Testament. Peter's view. This is Peter's perception or understanding of what is going on or what God is doing. So the first passage we want to look at is found in 1 Peter chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. 2 Peter 1, 16. Now, this is, this is going to be a little bit hard to follow, but we'll do the best that we can as we go through this. So, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, we didn't make this up, okay? When we told you about Jesus, we weren't making this up. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory with when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So this is the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, that event that takes place. Remember when Jesus went up, and he's transfigured before, the, before Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah show up there. So Peter's saying, we didn't make this up. We saw it, and we heard this voice. And so, now look what he says in verse 19. And so, we, Peter's talking about himself, have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light 
That shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, and, and here's the famous verse, the popular verse that we all turn to. We just kind of turn here instead of reading the whole context here. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means no one is, again, people are not making this up. Men are not making this up. It is not of a private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right, so this is what Peter is saying about what he wrote. He's saying, we are not making this up. We are not giving you our will concerning this. We are giving to you what has come to us through God's will by the Holy Spirit. So, I can exercise my will and write something, right? And you can read it or not read it or whatever. I can exercise my will and write it and write something, but that is not Scripture. It is Scripture when God exercises His will and delivers it to man through. That's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right? So Peter is actually looking at what he is writing here and he is saying, look, I'm giving to you the gospel and it is the prophetic word and it is not my doing, it is the Spirit of God moving in me that has given it to you. That's what Peter says of his own writing. And that's an important um, consideration here. Another verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy, prof- holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now, Peter here is putting his commandment of us, the apostles, on the same level as what was written before by the holy prophets. Now that's pretty bold. You you know what I mean? He is saying that his commandment is at the same level as the word spoken by the prophet in the past. That's pretty bold. And the only way he can say that is because he knows that God is using him in this capacity in a pretty powerful way. In this next passage, this is what Peter says of Paul's writings. And consider that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. This is 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them, in them of these things, in which are some hard things to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of, or the other, scriptures. So, Peter is calling Paul's writings, he's putting Paul's writing on the same level as the other scriptures, of the scriptures. So, he's basically saying, Paul, what he has written is scripture. It is on the same level as the other scripture. Uh, I always think it's funny, here's Peter Peter's the fisherman, right? And he, he and he, apparently he's read some of the things that Paul has r- written. And uh, he says, 
I tell you what, that Paul, he just writes some things that are hard to understand, right? So I, I, I always like that. I always get a kick out of that. And there it is, right there in the scripture. Uh, Peter's admitting his, you know, just kind of lack of ability, which we wouldn't expect to understand some of the things that Paul, who was apparently a really smart person, wrote. All right, so that's Peter. Peter's view of his writings and also of Paul's writings in particular. The next verse, now we want to look at Paul's view of what's going on here. So this is Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. And it says, he says this, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read in the church from, of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, this might be kind of a simple point, but basically he's saying, look, I've written this letter and I've sent it there, and I've written another letter and I've sent it there, and I want you to read that letter and let them read this letter. So, um, the idea is that what I've written is extremely important, and you need to read what I wrote you, and you need to read what I wrote them, and vice versa. All right, another verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, he's just laying it right out there. What you heard from us was the word of God. That's that's pretty uh, straightforward there. You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. All right? So uh, these are two verses here. that Paul refers to what he is writing as authoritative. Right? Um, now, this is right at the time of writing. This is, this is not centuries later. This is, this is these apostles who are writing the scriptures. Any questions about this? Any questions about the apostolic authority and the importance of it? So you understand what's happening here. It's scripture because it is given by God through his apostles. That's why it's scripture. And it is something immediately received. Paul understands it of his own writings. Peter understands it of his own writings and of Paul's writings. And that's just kind of the pattern that we follow here. All right, so any questions? All right. So here's the, here's the famous question. What if a letter of Paul were found today? What if we uncovered a letter of Paul? Or, you know, just to kind of broaden it a little bit, what if a prophet speaks today? Should we keep on adding to the scriptures that we have? So that's, the, that's kind of the uh, question that is often raised. So now I have to say, if we go to Ephesians chapter 4, we see how Christ has gifted the church. So I'm not reading it in context here, but you can look it up yourself. Ephesians chapter 4, 11. This is talking about the gifts that Christ has given to men, which basically we're talking about the leadership of the church, the called positions of the church. So it says in Ephesians 4.11, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. These are the gifts that God has given to the church. So from the time of Christ until our day, there have been apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Right? You see that? From that day until this day. But what we don't have in the church very often is the the request or the 
command or the insistence from these apostles and prophets that what they are preaching and writing and teaching should be added to the Scripture. You don't find that in the church. Now, as a prophet or a teacher myself, as a pastor myself, I would be mortified if anyone attempted to make my words Scripture. I would be mortified. Don't do that. And I think that that would, is a prevailing sentiment among the servants of God throughout history. You just don't have the desire to have your own words added to Scripture. Now, of course, you know, somebody else can come along and they put you on a pedestal and they think you're great and what he says should be added to Scripture, but the person himself would not have that view, much like Peter and the, they would not have the view that, that Peter and Paul had. Now, what is the difference here? I don't know. Maybe it's because Peter and Paul and some of the other early apostles and prophets had authority over the entire church. You know what I mean? Paul was not just the, uh, authority over an apostle of a local church. He was, he was an apostle and a prophet to the entire church. All the believers of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he goes to uh, great lengths to defend his apostleship. And you can look at Galatians as one of the clearest examples. He goes, he goes to great lengths to proclaim or to affirm or to establish that he is an apostle. And as an apostle, he has a right to write that epistle and for them to listen to it. He is a, the apostle of the church. And me and some other you know, pastors of churches... I am not a pastor of the entire church. I am a pastor of this church. And maybe that's a difference. Maybe, maybe the, but I'm, I'm just kind of speculating at this point. But the fact is that throughout history, except for false teachers, you do not have the attempt to add the teachings of these apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. You do not have the attempt to add them to the scripture and to expand the scriptural base. Now, there are many great sermons that have been preached and many great books that have been written and many brilliant men that have been a part of the church and they have contributed volumes and volumes and, and volumes. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and others have just contributed significantly to the body of material and to the understanding of our scriptures, but they have not attempted to make these writings a part of scripture. And that is a significant um, thing. So, concerning Paul's writings being found, well, if what Paul and Peter and the other apostles had done was foundational, we read that in those verses, right? If what they did was foundational, at this point then, we trust in God's providence that we have what the Lord intended for us to have as the foundation on which the church was built. So, if something was found, I would be, first of all, you know, you'd have to prove Paul wrote it, which would be pretty difficult, uh, especially given how much time has passed. Because remember, when somebody spoke or wrote, when was it accepted? After how much time? Was that? Yeah, immediately, immediately. So this would not be very immediately if we were fi to find it now. And, uh, and so we're, remember, we're talking about the... Uh, the foundation of the apostles and prophets in establishing 
God's word and giving that word to the church for its um, building up. All right. Our second point here. So we have apostolic authority, and because the apostles speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is the immediate reception. So the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the early church refers back to the apostles. So again, I mean, people began, the Christians began to speak and to preach and to teach the word right from the beginning, and they kept on referring back to the apostles and the message of the apostles and the, the words that they had written. They knew the apostles and they knew the apostles' ministry and they knew that they had been called. And so they go back and refer to them. So, you know, we can... Um, I, I have some quotes here, but we're not going to look at these. But uh, there's a, an immediate uh, recognition. Uh, all of the books of the New Testament were immediately recognized. All of them. There isn't this process of time where, you know, they live and they write and they wait, and the church decides, or, you know, let's take this out and then accept it, or let's add this in and then accept it. There's none of that. All of the apostles lived and wrote before A.D. 70, the fall of Jerusalem, except possibly with the exception of John, but even that is debatable. John might have written Revelation in uh, A.D. 90. Uh, A lot of people think that that one, too, was written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But it doesn't matter. It's really early, and the apostles, they lived and they wrote it, and that's when they, uh, uh, the word came. So uh, what, now what takes time is this. So if Paul writes his one letter, and he sends it to Corinthians, what takes time is getting that letter out and spreading it throughout the church. Because the church is spreading pretty quickly early on. I mean, thousands are coming to Christ and they get persecuted and then they, get, they, they go to other places and, and thousands more are coming to Christ and it's just kind of spreading throughout the Roman Empire. So much so that by 325, um, uh, Constantine becomes the emperor of the, of the Roman period and the church has you know, spread throughout the whole Roman Empire and it becomes the established uh, religion of the empire, for better or for worse. But that, that's kind of... The, the point is the, the spread throughout the Roman Empire. What took time was getting the word and making copies and spreading them out throughout the rest of the church. Now, what's really refreshing is when you come across somebody who is counter, uh, counter-cultural in the you know, academic understanding of how the canon came to be formed. And, and I wanted to give you a quote from a well-respected systematic theology here. This is by Gordon Lewis and Bruce Demarest, and the book is Integrative Theology. So this is a pretty prominent academic book, and a lot of uh, seminaries and stuff are using it. But it's refreshing when you come across a quote like this. It says, By what criteria were such unimpeachable writings distinguished from others? The primary factor in recognizing the divine authority of these books was authorship by a tested and verified prophet. Merely human writings were not invested with divine authority by decision of a council, but books originating with God were recognized as of final authority immediately upon knowing their author's authenticity as prophetic spokesmen. So I just love that quote. It's just a reaffirming of what we are talking about here. So we're not talking about a process that spans centuries, and we're not talking about a process that required the convening of councils. We are talking about immediate acceptance. Now, we have some uh, quotes I want to share with you. The 
from Clement of Rome. And yet, Clement of Rome is, he's about AD 90, so this is right at the time when, uh, you know, the New Testament has been written. Um, I mean, all the books have been written by here. By this time, he says, Take up the epistle of the blessed Paul the Apostle. What did he first write to you at the beginning of his preaching? With true inspiration he charged you. So this is, this is, one, this is one of the earliest writings that we have, Clement of Rome, about A.D. 90, which is extremely early, and he is affirming the inspiration of Paul. There is an immediate acceptance of the works that were written. Polycarp was a disciple of, of Papias, who was a disciple of John. So you have John, and then you have Papias, and then you have Polycarp, who wrote something. So he's writing in the mid-2nd century, so 150, 140, pretty early still again. He mentions a plurality of letters by Paul. So already, you know, the letters of Paul are becoming, uh, well, they're being collected and spread throughout the church, and copies are being made of them. Polycarp writing to the church in Philippi, um, in mid-2nd century again, he sends their requests for the letters of Paul. So I have this quote here. He says, I can't read it, for neither I nor anyone like me is able to rival the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul, who when living among you carefully and steadfastly taught the word of truth face to face with his contemporaries and when he was absent, wrote you letters. All right, again, there's a yielding to the authority of Paul as an apostle. Now, at the, at the same time, as you would imagine, you have heretics coming up or rising up. These heretics are people who did not like God and did not want God, or maybe they wanted to put themselves up, um, uh, but it doesn't matter. I mean, we're warned of them even in the New Testament times here when Peter's writing and Paul is writing. You have these false teachers. And so you have these heretics that are rising up. One of the most prominent is a man named Marcion, and uh, he gained quite a following. Um, here's a, one of the things that he believed was that the God of the Old Testament was not the same as the God of the New Testament. The, the God, the Creator, is a judge, fierce and warlike. Joshua conquered the Holy Land with violence and cruelty, but Christ prohibits all violence and preaches mercy and peace. Now, He's not the only one to have ever had this view of the Old Testament. And by the way, such a view of the Old Testament just miss, misses God's loving kindness altogether. It just does not understand the Old Testament. But this is Marcion. And he was against the Old Testament. And he put together his own Bible. He only accepted the Gospel of Luke and ten of Paul's epistles. And that was it. That's all he wanted. Now, people will use his list, because it's one of the earliest lists, as the beginning of the process of creating a list of accepted books in the Bible. But what he is doing is not creating a list from nothing. What he's doing is he is choosing from the ones that have already been accepted, the ones he likes and doesn't like. So rather than being a, something, someone that supports the process, He's actually affirming that there is no process, but you have the accepted books already. So his collection of books is, a, is specifically in repudiation of the other writings. After all, he's rejecting the whole Old Testament. He's not accepting it as Scripture. 
So the other books are accepted. He didn't like them. He created his own little canon. So this is Marcion. Immediately you have people in the church like Justin Martyr. He's in the middle second century as well. He, is, uh, he writes this treatise against Marcion just to, to stand up with the truth against this heretical teaching. Now, uh, this was not the only thing he believed. He believed a, a number of false teachings. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons, <laughs> this is kind of funny, but one of the reasons he had such a, a popularity among the people is that he used to put some of his beliefs to song. You know, he'd write these little did, ditties. And, uh, you know, like you see a commercial and you have the song and you just kind of remember the product because of the song that you're singing, right? You know what I'm saying? So this is what he used to do. He used to create these songs. And people loved, that, loved him and loved what, you know, his little songs. And, and some people suggest that maybe that's why he had such a, a large following. But uh, there was, it was always uh, heretical in his teachings altogether. And, and before we think that, you know, this is like close, this is all close, you know, it could go either way. The, the contents of these books, you know, they're just, they could be good, it could not be good, it's just so close. Uh, I'm going to read you some excerpts in a moment, but I, I have to say just um, with respect to like the book of Hebrews, for example, and the book of Revelation. The book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation, they were accepted early on. But what the heretics do, or the critics, what they'll do is they'll start to deny some of the things that these books said. So primarily with respect to Hebrews, for example, we don't know who wrote Hebrews because it doesn't say, doesn't doesn't tell us. But it was accepted into the canon immediately because the church believed or knew that who wrote it. Do you think? All right, one of the it had to be an apostle, and the tradition is, without exception, really, that Paul wrote the Epistle of Hebrews, and that's why it was a part of Scripture. As time went on, people started to say things like, "Well, his name doesn't appear in it like some of the other epistles," or, "Well, he doesn't write the same way as some of his other epistles, so it couldn't have been Paul." And then you. You know, the, you're skeptical and you spread that skepticism and now the book falls on hard times within the church. But it's not a hard time on accepting it, it's on rejecting it. It's kind of the other direction. So, I never believed that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but now I'm a firm believer that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews because I'm a firm believer in apostolic authority and immediate acceptance. All right, same thing with Revelation. They wanted to dispute that John wrote it, um, but that's the reason it was a part of the canon. So, let me read you some excerpts. Now, sometimes, you know, a lot of what they write is good, and it's kind of scriptural in, in a way, but uh, you'll, you'll see some differences here. And I apologize. This is really the end, so I apologize if I go a little bit long. This is from the Gospel of Peter. There's a, there's a work, it's called the Gospel of Peter. So it says, It was noon, and darkness gripped all Judea. The Jews were worried and anguished, lest the sun had already set, since he, Jesus, still lived. This is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. It is written for them that the sun is not to set on one who has been killed. One of them said, Give him gall mixed with vinegar to drink. They mixed it and gave it to him to drink. You see the similarities between what we 
read in the Gospels. Indeed, they fulfilled everything, and they brought their sins to full fruition on their own heads. Many went around with lamps. They thought it was night. They fell. And the Lord cried out, My power, power, you have left me. He said this and was taken up. That same hour, the veil of the Jerusalem temple was split in two. Now, it's pretty close, but there's one kind of strange part there. Whether he's, we're in the Bible, he's talking to God. Here, he's saying, the power has left me. And that's a little bit unusual. It's kind of a, you know, a, a twist. But that's kind of close still. We're still close with that. Let me read you another one. This is the Gospel of Philip. The Gospel of Philip. Some say Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. They err. They do not know what they say. When did a woman become pregnant by a woman? Mary is the virgin whom no power corrupted. She is a great anathema to the Hebrews, who are the apostles and apostolic men. This virgin whom no power defiled, the powers defiled them or themselves. The Lord would not have said, My Father who is in heaven, if he had not had another father, but he would have simply said, My Father. Now this is, this is even stranger because now it's talking about Mary, well, there's an elevation of Mary and Mary was not impregnated by the Holy Spirit and that's contrary to what we read in Scripture. So, so we're seeing some departure from the things that are written in here. And the, the reasoning is that the Holy Spirit is viewed as feminine in some parts of the church and that's why he says a woman cannot impregnate a woman. But this is a misunderstanding and a departure from Scripture. Um, the infancy gospel of Thomas. The infancy gospel of Thomas. When this child Jesus was five years old, so this is a story about Jesus when he was five years old. He was playing at the ford of a stream. He made pools of the rushing water and made it immediately pure. He ordered this by word alone. He made soft clay and, and modeled 12 sparrows from it. It was the Sabbath when he did this. There were many other children playing with him. A certain Jew saw what Jesus did while playing on the Sabbath. In other words, he made something and broke the Sabbath, right? This is what the other kid is complaining about here. He immediately went and announced to his father Joseph, See, your child is at the stream and has taken clay and modeled twelve birds. He has profaned the Sabbath. Joseph, Joseph came to the place, and seeing what Jesus did, he cried out, Why do you do on the Sabbath what is not lawful to do? Jesus clapped his hands and cried to the sparrows, Be gone! And the sparrows flew off chirping. In other words, this clay became real live birds, and they flew off. The Jews saw this and were amazed. They went away and described to their leaders what they had seen Jesus do. The son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there with Joseph. He took a branch of a willow and scattered the water which Jesus had arranged. Eh, this guy, he just messes up what Jesus had done. Jesus saw what he did and became angry and said to him, You unrighteous ignoramus, what did the pools of water do to harm you? Behold, you shall also wither as a tree, and you shall not bear leaves, nor roots, nor fruit. And immediately that child was all withered. Jesus left and went to the house of Joseph. The parents of the withered one bore him away, bemoaning his lost youth. They led him to Joseph and reproached him. What kind of child do you have who does such things? So you, so you can see how the things that Jesus is doing here is just off of the character that we 
read of Christ. I could read some more, but I'm going to turn to this last one. And this is the famous Gospel of Thomas. And I say famous because um, it is used by many as kind of the, the linchpin between some of the Gospels and how they came to be. So um, the Gospel of Thomas says, Jesus said, The kingdom of the Father is like a woman who was carrying a jar which was full of meal while she was walking on a distant road. The handle of the jar broke. The meal spilled out behind her onto the road. She did not know. She was not aware of the accident. After she came to her house, she put the jar down and found it empty. So it sprung a leak and she lost all of her food. Jesus said, The kingdom of the Father is like a man who wanted to kill a powerful man. He drew the sword in his own house. He thrust it into the wall so that he would, not, so that he would know if his hand would stick it through. Then he killed the powerful one. So it's... A little bit strange what we're reading here, but it gets even stranger. So remember, this is, this is the Gospel of Thomas that modern academics want to kind of associate as the source of, you know, like Luke and Matthew and so on. Um, this, is, this is how it ends. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us because women are not worthy of the life. <laughs> can't help but laugh every time I read this. Jesus said, look, I shall guide her so that I will make her male in order that she also may become a living spirit, being like you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so I'm picking out some examples, but there are many of these kinds of things. We are talking about documents that are not close to Scripture. They are perverted in many ways. And they depart from the truth of Scripture. So, um, anyway, you know, that, that's kind of uh, problematic. And, and again, my point is that we're talking about apostolic authority versus these other writings. And it's not like we're on the fence with them. We're talking about, you know, some, some important deviations from the truth. Um, one more thing. Now, I'm, I brought out some negative examples, but there are some positive examples, too. You have the didache in the early church. This would be the early first century. You have the shepherd of Hermas. And this is what uh, another writing, the Muratorian fragment, says of the shepherd of Hermas. The shepherd of Hermas was accepted pretty early on in the church. Uh, Not a scripture, but listen to what he says here. It says of the shepherd of Hermas, It is approved, but not a scripture. Written too recently. Ought to be read, but not publicly to the people in the church. In other words, you can use the shepherd of Hermas, but don't read it to the church. Now, why don't you read it to the church? Because they didn't have a Bible back then, right? If you were going to hear the word of God, whoever had the copy read the letter to everybody else. So basically, don't waste time reading the shepherd of Hermas to the people when you have the scriptures that you need to read to the people. So it is approved. That means it is important for you. It's like somebody writing a good book that's impactful and powerful and and you encourage and we give free copies of in the back or whatever you know we encourage you to read them and they're helpful and they provide uh, good teaching uh, to us but we would never consider them a part of scripture they're helpful but not scripture clement of rome his epistle and we saw a little bit of what he wrote earlier epistle of barnabas these are good early writings of the church and even though they were good and um And lined up with the truth, they were never considered a part of the Scripture. 
So the, the attempt was not to bring books in. It's interesting, the devil always wants to discredit the word and push it out. And that's what we see throughout the history of the church. So all the disputes in church history, only rarely are they about accepting other books. It is primarily in the rejection of what is accepted, of the accepted books. You basically don't want to hear the prophet, and so you reject the message. And that's, that's what the history shows us. So here is, in conclusion, the canon of the New Testament. And, and there's just two simple points here. You have Jesus, he comes on, he speaks the words of the kingdom, he chooses and affirms his apostles, he anoints them with the Holy Spirit, they continue as prophets laying the foundation for the church. They speak and they write, and their writings are received immediately and the church is established. They re- the church receives their testimony and then the war against Scripture begins. And that's what we see throughout history.